This is Frankly Speaking by Friends of Europe, an independent think tank with a difference. Frankly Speaking is your go-to on all things peace, security and defense. Original content, original thought. My friends are in jail and they are the people who lost their voice. And my close friend Katya Andreeva was sentenced to eight years. Another friend of mine was sentenced to 15 years and he attempted suicide in prison twice. I have these two people who, who I have been fighting for, and this is the reason why I cannot stop. How can I help if I would quit journalism? Who else will speak? Somebody has to do it. Hanna Lubakov is a Belarusian journalist in exile. After the government's crackdown of the protests that followed the elections of 2020, Lyubakova had to flee because her country was not safe for her anymore. She was later detained in a country which she is not disclosing and ultimately let go, without being extradited to Belarus. However, it was during her detainment that Lyubakova found out that she is in the government's wanted list. The reasons to not go back keep piling up, but the democracy activist is not giving up. After all, she's one of the few voices left for those who cannot speak up. Earlier this year, the U.S. State Department said that over 1,500 political prisoners are detained in Belarus. I'm Katerina Villanova and you're listening to Frankly Speaking. I spoke to Anna Lyubakov in Brussels last week, where she came to attend Friends of Europe, State of Europe. Here's our conversation. Anna, thank you so much for joining our podcast and for taking the time to, to visit us here at uh, Friends of Europe. Thank you very much for the invitation. It's such an honor. So you are in Brussels to actually participate in, uh, in our flagship event, State of Europe. In your session, you will be speaking with, uh, alongside with the um, Swedish State Secretary for EU Affairs, the former HRVP for the European Union, as well as the European Commissioner for Justice. Can you tell us a bit what points you will try to, to make? I will be definitely speaking about media and the role of journalists and what to do, how to help journalists uh, remain safe and how to protect their um, well, freedom in our case in Belarus, but also safety in general. I think there are three main areas where the, uh, where, um, the EU can help. And we will focus right now on Belarus, but I'm sure this also this is relevant for, for other countries. In the region or in the world where repressions are generally happening, happening and where you have this sort of um, well, authoritarian dictatorial regimes, have you noticed that they're actually uniting in some sort of dictator's club, some sort of authoritarianism inc? Um, so I think we should also unite more and um, um, well, stood up, I guess, against this whole dictatorial club and have our own democracy club, I guess. So, okay, when it comes to policies, first, um, what I would definitely mention is pressure, uh, both political, economic, and let's put it this way, justice pressure. They're really dictators. They're really scared of potential tribunals or some sort of investigations into their need, uh, deeds. And not only them are scared, but also people around them. This is why I believe that this warrant on, um, against Putin and uh, Lvova Bilova uh, in Russia, I think, affected so much people around Vladimir Putin. So this is something that I would recommend to do with regards to Alexander Lukashenko, because he is first 
a war criminal. He helps Russia in the war against Ukraine. He helps Russia in transferring Ukrainian children to the territory of Belarus. So there are some facts that have been already publicized. Um, and he was involved in the crimes against humanity, in the crimes, uh, human rights violations against Belarusians in 2020 and after that. And repressions in Belarus have not stopped, that they actually increased in the past years. Uh, so this is something that uh, has been ongoing. And this is something that the EU Commission, EU countries, EU governments in general should look into, I believe. When it comes to economic pressure, uh, the EU has done already a lot when it comes to the regime in Belarus. And this is something that many of us are grateful for because this is a sign of solidarity in a way. Uh, however, so all major sectors of the economy have already been under sanctions. Um, however, what we are lacking right now is the implementations of the sanctions because we are seeing that the regime is able to avoid some of the sanctions that have been uh, have been imposed. So perhaps a mechanism, some sort of task force that would look into the implementation um, and enforcement of these sanctions that have, have, have already been imposed. You said, I mentioned before that these uh, well, leaders are putting, getting together in a, in a dictator's club. You mentioned already three names so far, uh, but I'm assuming the club has other members. Uh, would you like to name others that perhaps are not the usual suspects and the first na names that would come to mind? When it comes to allies of Lukashenko to one or other extent, of course, as we know, is Russia, right, is Putin, but also it's Iran. And we have seen that most recently in relations to the war against Ukraine, this collaboration also increased. Another country which I can mention is North Korea, which again, um, the current isolation of Russia, I think, put this to dictators closer. But also I see that Lukashenko is trying to join this sort of dictators club and he's trying to establish this dictatorial kind of nexus um, and, and um, be kind of the third one who would uh, um, be, speak together with Putin and, um, uh, you know, and North Korea. So, so yeah. So there are many more, but I think it doesn't, what doesn't, like, there is nothing like one ideology that unites them. Um, there is nothing like some one interest that would unite them. This is their general hatred of liberal values, of democracy, of free speech that they have. And everything comes out of it, right? So all their policies are similar in a way. They might be kind of, you know, different. The situation in other countries is different. But in the end, we have the same picture in every of these countries. Journalists are being arrested in the first place, right? right? Because they're scared of journalists. Um, human rights defenders are being arrested and so on, right? So they just repeat themselves and it feels like they have the same textbook. Yeah, they have the same mechanisms, you know, how they kind of exchange all these tricks and ideas of repression and how to suppress civil society and how to, again, avoid sanctions, right? You wrote on, uh, well, now, X, that Belarus is part of the problem, uh, but it can also be part of the solution. I think it's very clear by now by everything that you just told us. Uh, why is it part of the problem? But how can it be part of the solution? 
I would just mention that the regime is part of the problem. But people of Belarus should be um, a change, a democratic change in Belarus would be definitely a solution and would definitely help Ukraine win. Because I believe that the strongest sanction for Putin is democratic Belarus. So this is something that they should aspire for. And if we would have won in 2020 when we had the revolution and mass protests all over the country, um, I think Belarus uh, and maybe Belarus firstly would be different, of course, it would be a democratic state, I think, at this point. But who knows, maybe Putin would not have even started the war because he would lose the only actual ally that he has in the territory that helped, helped him advance in the first uh, weeks of the war, of the full-scale invasion. So now removing Belarus from this equation, removing Belarus from the war would definitely help Ukraine. And again, this is something that I hope Europe will understand. Without free Belarus, there won't be stable and secure Europe either. Very powerful, that statement. Can you bring us back to that summer of 2020 when uh, after the elections, these protests erupted? What was the, the environment in your country? How would you describe what was happening? Belarus was never a democratic state, um, in, at least in the past 20 years. Uh, Lukashenko came, came in power in 1994 and he immediately took control over well, basically every institution that, that you would consider expect to be democratic, like free press or the parliament or courts and so on. Um, so we have lived in this situation for decades and we know what it means to live in, a, in an authoritarian country. But then 20, 2020 happened and what I saw was something that I definitely did not expect. So I saw so much unity among people. It also happened because of COVID, because of the pandemic. And you remember it was the beginning of the pandemic and everybody was so scared. And of course people were also scared, but then in Belarus, but then when Lukashenko started um, laughing at people who died, he started denying the coronavirus. People felt really angry and offended by that. And they lost faith in the state. People saw that, well, it's actually the state that puts them in danger by not imposing some limitations uh, during, during, during the pandemic. So that was the first actual like reason, right? Why people rose up, but there were many other reasons because people were genuinely tired of Lukashenko. He's been in power for so many years and they wanted change. Then the economy of course is uh, also in crisis and uh, there was no change, right? For years and uh, people just want to develop, with their country to develop. And so on. So all of a sudden, like they began, became politicized and we had this election, presidential election. And this is in, even in dictatorial countries, every electoral campaign provokes some sort of mobilization. So Lukashenko was just not lucky that the pandemic happened in the same year when there was the presidential election. So we had this immense unity. We had this immense mobilization. And um, solidarity, of course, between people and this sort of willingness to see justice when they came to ballot um, to vote voting stations, when they uh, cast their ballots and they knew they voted for Tikhanovska for an alternative candidate. And then Lukashenko said that, well, I actually had 80 percent of the votes and people were like, what? 
no, that's not true. This is not possible. We know that this is not possible because there were so many people around the streets before the election. And this was another reason why, because pe people wanted to defend their vote, right? Um, uh, their voice and their votes. So they came out to the streets and what they faced were this immense repression and uh, this brutal brutality, state terror, uh, torture, incredible repression, uh, thousands of people detained like daily in the first days of protest and that provoked even more anger. And all of this just, it was like snowball mobilization. It just grew, 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 grew. Um, and this anger uh, became really crucial. And this is why, despite all repressions that happened, we had protests for weeks and months. But then if you have the army, if you control the police, then of course, every state is, um, um, can suppress any movement because they have just enough resources. And this is what the regime in Belarus did because they were ready to shoot at people on the streets, which they did again. So now, three years after that, people cannot protest. The situation got really worse. Uh, it, it's even worse than it was in 2020. But nothing changed. People um, are against the regime and people won't change. And how is it possible to demonstrate that nowadays? Last year, um, and we had uh, demonstrations, protests against the full-scale invasion and the participation of Belarus. People still went, went out to the streets. It was um, one and a half years after brutal repression, but still people went out to the streets. Then we had uh, at least 80 sabotage actions against the, on the railway against the movement of Russian troops to Ukraine. And again, this is Belarus is the country where you can be sentenced for to death penalty if you do this. And because the regime shows it, because every day we have at least 20 arrests, politically motivated arrests. And, and this is every day. Like every day, 20 people are being detained. And these are the people we know. Our human rights defenders are able to get their names. The actual number might, might be much higher. So imagine, like, the regime knows that the situation did not come down. And two years ago was also the time that you had to, to leave your, your own country, correct? Um, was there a specific moment where you realized that uh, it was not safe for you anymore to remain? So I was, so I covered protests. I was still in Minsk and then I got several messages that I need to leave the country because I was too visible. Do you know by, by whom? No, these were not, uh, these were not uh, the KGB who informed me. <laughs> Um, I got it, I got it from my friends, so I'll put it this way. So I was recommended to leave the country and I, it, I left for, I left for Ukraine. So I still, it was still able to leave without any sort of problems. I flew, I, I just took a plane and flew to Ukraine. Um, on the border, they sort of interrogated me a little bit. They asked me like where, where I'm going, why, and when I'm coming back. So there was like more attention that I would usually a face um, and then I still thought that I would go back so it was still warm and I just took summer clothes and I never came back after that because when I was in Kiev already in Russia Today RT so RT wrote about me calling me a NATO puppet 
so that I spread some anti-Russian propaganda or whatever. So it became kind of clear that maybe um, maybe it wouldn't be safe to come back. And plus, repressions became more targeted. So they knew who they arrested on the streets. And to add to that, I knew that I would leave generally because even before the election, even before August 2020, there was surveillance. I was followed on the streets when I traveled across the country, reporting, covering the uh, the um, kind of presidential campaign. And uh, yeah, there were just people who followed me. So I knew that at some point this time, this kind of moment would come. Probably I did not expect that I would need to leave so soon. A year, one year later, I found out by um, by accident, but that was not the pleasant case. Uh, so I found out that I am on the wanted list and that the regime launched a criminal case against me uh, saying that I attempted to seize power, which is punishable by up to 12 years in prison. It is a very funny accusation, but the situation is not funny because you are a target. What are the, the government's uh, arguments for these uh, accusations against you? Well, they don't need arguments. Uh, they sentence people to 20 years for uh, for blogging, basically. So I don't think that they need arguments, but um, maybe they just don't like my Twitter. Maybe they don't like my writing or my comments. Maybe they will not like this podcast either and launch another criminal case. I don't know. Um, but uh, how I found out, so I was arrested um, in one country. So it was a former Soviet Republic. You don't want to say which? No, I'm not saying which one, but um, but yeah, but this was, um, this happened and, uh, and they informed me that uh, they had to contact the, the general prosecutor's office and they informed me that uh, I have this criminal case and I'm on the wanted list. But they knew that this was a political case, so I was released. Luckily, they did not extradite me. And did you have then to leave that country where yeah. the arrest happened? Of course. But during all this, uh, I guess uh, no one would ever judge or anything close to that for wanting to quit journalism, but you did the exact opposite. You continue. It never crossed your mind to stop your work? I mean, the damage is done, so what can I do? I cannot go back to normal life, I guess. Um, even if I quit journalist today, journalism today, what, the regime will not, I guess, stop a criminal case. Okay, jokes aside. My friends are in jail, and they are the people who lost their voice because they have been imprisoned. And my close friend Katya Andreeva was sentenced to eight years. Another friend of mine was sentenced to 15 years, and he attempted suicide in prison twice. His wife has been jailed because he, because she defended him, and she gave many interviews. So she was Daria Losik. Uh, his name is Igor Losik, and the wife is uh, the wife's name is Daria. So she was jailed and she was sentenced to two years. And their daughter Paulinka. Um, it's just with her grandparents, and I have these two people who who I have been fighting for. So we all have our friends in jail. We all have someone we know who is in jail and who we fight for. And this is the reason why I cannot stop. Like, what? How, how can I help? If I would quit journalism, who else will speak? Who else will be? 
um, we'll be doing this work. Somebody has to do it. So this is my, I guess, my, maybe there is some feeling of guilt, survivor's guilt, I guess, um, because I want to help, right? And I, and I feel guilty that I'm free and they're not. Another reason is that I want to go back home, as simple as, as that. I, losing home is not fun. You lose something very important, you lose your ground. You are, of course, I have an apartment where I live right now, but I rent it, but um, I, I feel homeless still, right? Because there is no place uh, where I can go and feel like at home. So, and I just hate seeing how the regime Lukashenko's regime is destroying my country. They literally, well, not officially, but they unofficially ban Belarusian language, the language I speak, the language of my nation. They destroy our identity. They want us to be like Russians, and we are not. We are a separate country, we are a separate nation. They destroy the economy. They destroy everything great that we have. And Belarus is a beautiful country with amazing people and I want the world to know how great Belarus is and this is not just um, the regime that helps Putin. This is uh, a great nation that has a lot to offer to the, to, to the EU as well, hopefully in the future. Do you aspire for Belarusian to become part of the EU family? Is that part of the, the work that activists such as yourself and the Belarusian government in exile uh, are trying to work towards? I think that the EU membership in the European Union is the only alternative to the Russian world, to Ruskimir. The invasion of Ukraine clearly showed it. And it's not only, of course, the issue of security, which is very important, which is going to be very important because we see that if Russia doesn't change, then these imperialistic ambitions, this colonialistic thinking will prevail and will we are already under threat. Belarus is already under threat, but it will be even worse in the future. For now, uh, Russian troops are in Belarus, of course, but they do not invade. But if they have not invaded Belarus, but if Belarus will change and if it will not join the EU, then it will be really dangerous to have such a neighbor as Russia and do not be part of, of, of the European Union. But again, this is not only the issue of security. Belarus for centuries has been in unions with Poland, with Lithuania, European, EU countries. Belarus is in the heart of Europe. Uh, Belarus is a neighbor, but it's also a European nation. And uh, our history shows that we, um, we just need to be part of the European family. You know, we are part of the European family. We're just these forgotten Europeans in a way because we became part of the Russian Empire and all of a sudden everybody forgot that we have actually been with, with, with Europe um, for most of our history before that. And you are currently writing a book, correct? What can you tell us about it? Bloomsbury, this uh, great publishing house, contacted me, I think, back in 2020, and they offered me to write this book. Um, because some years have already passed, I will not focus only on protests. And I think this is good, because if I would have focused on this alone, um, this would be about a book about the uprising, and I want to write a book about the revolution. And the revolution is still happening. 
in Belarus. So this will be about all the changes that are happening and it will have a strong human angle. It's really difficult to talk to people inside Belarus because they're scared. And there are many funny cases when I have to record myself, like send them, uh, of course, my name and who I am, and they can Google, they can check, and everybody checks really thoroughly. But then I have to record a video saying that, well, this is me. Um, this is my picture. This is like my name. This is me. This is real me. Because there are security forces who can pretend that they are journalists or, you know, other people and they want to talk to, to people about something. So, so people have to be really, really careful. Um, yeah. So I keep recording these videos saying that it's actually me. Believe me. It's amazing how you can still have maintain your sense of humor in the middle of all this. Oh, humor actually helps a lot. We have, um, no, even political prisoners joke. It's, um, it's very sad. It's very kind of touching. It, it just destroys you sometimes and you want to cry when you read that, but they keep joking. And I cannot imagine how they can do it. And of course, prisons in Belarus are not five-star hotels. Uh, these are torture chambers. Um, but they still keep joking and they still support people who are free. Somehow, some actually political prisoners mentioned, and I will never undermine the conditions in prisons, but there were political prisoners who were released because they just served their unjust terms. But they were, so they were released and they said that we there felt that you actually need support because you feel guilty, that you feel um we have so much power, like we know that we are right. We know that we are doing something, uh, you know, really fair and, and, and we fight. Again, I want these people to be free anyway, because many cannot survive, might not survive, because there are people who are, uh, there, is, there is a journalist, Ksenia Lutskina, who has a brain tumor. Uh, there are people who have cancer. There are elderly people, Alias Belaski, our Nobel laureate, who is 60 was sentenced to 10 years in jail. So imagine if the Belarus is not free in the next, well, months or well, even years, then how many years can he spend behind bars? And their health deteriorates a lot uh, because it's um, they don't have vitamins, they don't have fresh air, and the food, food there is really bad. So the conditions there are really horrible. But somehow they have this resilience and so much power inside that they actually are able to give support to us. It's amazing. I think it's really amazing. And this is something I really admire. Thank you so much. Thank you.